have seen so many programs that would say, hey, we offer healthcare or we offer telehealth. And it's that or that really separates it and makes the program not as successful as the programs that say we offer healthcare and part of that is telehealth. Welcome to a virtual view where we talk about telehealth, healthcare, and everything in between. Today we will be hearing from Billy Sample and Scott Simmons who will discuss the origins of telehealth and speak to how the past informs the present and future of telehealth implementations. Thank you for having us on. My name is Billy Sample and while my background is not as extensive as Scott Simmons's, I'm very honored to have him as a cohort. I've been doing telemedicine for right around the last decade. I was actually an IT guy by trade and was working in the retail computer world at an organization called Office Depot. I had a very wonderful customer that was coming in and buying all their technology equipment from me. And they were about ready to look for their own technology director. And my background was pretty heavy in computers. And so they asked me to come be their IT director. So I took the position and about three days after I started, they said, hey, look, we have this wonderful concept. We have these two telehealth codecs and we want to make them work from Montgomery, Alabama to Selma, Alabama, so that we can see HIV patients in Selma and they don't have to make that hour and 30 minute drive to Montgomery. We can't figure out how to make it work. And so three days after I got hired, I was told to make this telemedicine thing work. And I'm glad to say over the better part of the last decade, I was able to expand their program from two telehealth units that weren't working to 157 interconnected endpoints. And then as the COVID pandemic hit, we bolstered our infrastructure to be able to not only host our own telehealth calls, but we were also hosting calls for organizations all across the South and providing them with, it was cloud-based for them, but on-premises for us. And so we basically contained their entire call and were able to give them a secure and encrypted environment to utilize for keeping their patients safe. About four years ago, our organization decided to open its own telehealth resource center, which they asked me to run. And so for about the last four years, I've been running a telehealth resource center that was not funded by the federal government, but privately funded, as well as maintaining the telehealth network for the organization. So not as impressive as building something for the International Space Station, but in the Deep South, it really addressed a need. And I'm proud to say that uh, we were able to step up in the pandemic and really be able to not only be a beacon of light for our patients, but also to help other organizations provide access to their patients. Yeah, absolutely. Access to care is something that's really important, especially in a lot of the rural communities that we serve. And it's amazing to see how that program came from an idea and it was able to grow over the past decade. You both have had extensive experience in telehealth. So what I'm curious of is how has telehealth evolved over the course of your career? Now, we all know that during COVID, it feels like everyone knows what telehealth is. There's been rapid adoption, much more exposure, patient and provider exposure to telehealth. In the years leading up to the pandemic, how did you see telehealth evolve over that time? I think the, um, if, if I may make a couple of points in reaction to a couple of things that you said, that the access to care is not just a rural challenge, it's an urban challenge too. Like I live in Miami, Florida, 
And there are parts of urban Miami that are just as underserved and just as difficult to access care, even though they might be within only a few miles of medical care, they may as well be a hundred miles away. So you pick Chicago or Los Angeles or Houston or you know, Miami where I am, those would definitely be just as challenging. Now they don't have the geographic separation, but it's a kind of a socioeconomic cultural challenge. So I don't want to lose sight of that. And that was actually one of the things that we ranted about a bit when we were the big change from going from East Carolina to University of Miami was that all of the, the reimbursement was focused on rural areas. So if you weren't in a, if you were not in a rural area or a health professional shortage area or all these uh, stipulations that were there, you, there was no reimbursement. And that's what we, we said is that it's not about geography, right? To get to your question about how telehealth has changed, Probably as an engineer, I would be berated by my colleagues if I didn't start by the, the tech part, what, what's changed. And it's amazing. I remember the first video conferencing systems we used to use, uh, I think that was a CLI Rembrandt 2 codec. This thing was about the size of a, of a small dishwasher. And what, it was one of those things that you'd have the T1 interface card and that would give you trouble. And then the system itself, that would take all this tweaking and magic. There was a wizard behind the curtain that was making a thing that, that thing work. And then once it got working, everybody slowly stepped back and hoped they didn't bump something because to unseat a card or heck it was probably tubes. And where we've gone from that to where I can get Zoom or Teams on my phone, it's just amazing. And, and the quality of the video and audio we have now is phenomenal too. So we have the bandwidth now, which we didn't have before because I'm not that old. And I remember being excited going from a 9.8 modem to a 14.4 modem to connect to AOL. And we've got from that to gigabit ethernet to the home. Broadband in the workplace, at the home, the ubiquity of cell coverage now with you know 4G LTE and 5G, where the platforms have come, where devices have come. I, I think one of the interesting things that, that's happened is we're getting this blurring of the lines between what's consumer IT and electronics versus what's like medical grade, right? There's a blurring of the lines. You never think of Apple as being a medical device manufacturer, but in some ways they are, right? And people are using these platforms that they use for their day-to-day -day business in the same way they're using to provide care. And, and I think the other thing that's changed is the scope or the breadth has changed too, and the locations too, because originally like the big adopters were, of course, like the space program, almost infinite resources, infinite bandwidth, the military and then correctional institutions, right, out of necessity and for public public safety reasons, that th those were the big early adopters. And then, and it was somewhat limited in the terms of services that would be provided. And then now that just rapidly expanded and, and very acute care being provided too. We've got one big customer in the, in the Midwest that's providing virtual ED services and covering something like 220 EDs in 20 plus different states. And they're managing I think on a typical day, they manage four cardiac arrests. And then you think of telestroke and tele-ICU. It's very acute um, what sorts of things that are happening now. And, and one of my fears about people's exposure to telehealth during COVID is that they have this limited view of what it is. It's this direct-to-patient, two people on the phone, and there's so much more available to people. Those of us have been at it for a while. And so people are talking about, oh, this new great thing called telehealth. It's been around for a while, right? So. And I think I'd like to add that uh, a change that I've seen is cost. 
I remember when I was initially buying telehealth equipment for my organization, the sticker shock was real. When we're talking about putting a telehealth card in a medical clinic and, and the numbers are like, oh, I could buy three houses for that. Whereas now you can outfit an entire telehealth cart, put it in a, a clinical location for sub $10,000. And that's a great price. And so I think that is a major change is the fact that as it's become more recognized, it's actually lowered the cost. And I think that's a huge benefit. But also, as Scott alluded to, the spectrum of services. I remember when I first started, it was behavioral health may have used it a little bit. And then there was a, a few places that figured out some niche healthcare that they could utilize telehealth for. And now telehealth can be used for so many things to include all of the different spectrums of care, but also remote patient monitoring is huge now where a provider organization or a provider team can stay connected to their patient, even when the patient's just going through the normal day-to-day -day at home. And those are two major changes that I've seen over the better part of the last decade that have really made telehealth, while a perfect response to the pandemic, I think that the pandemic may have brought it to light, but I think we were getting really close to breaking that, what I'd like to call glass ceiling of now everybody knows really what it is because the, the companies were were really expanding A, on what they could do with it, but B, really lowering the cost so that it was more affordable across the spectrum. Well, and what COVID did, it was a, it was really a catalyst, right? Because telehealth's always been transformative. It's just a matter of getting to the scale where it can really make a major impact on, on the health system. It's interesting, at least for the last 20 or 25 years, I've, I've, said, I've said at the beginning of the year, this is the year telehealth's going to take off. And it never quite did. And then this black swan event of COVID came in and just it was a catalyst that start hit the explosion. We talked to organizations that were going that were like two orders of magnitude higher volume after COVID. Within weeks of COVID starting, the you know one 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 customer of ours that went from I think like 600 visits. It was a, a large health network that went from like 600 visits a day to 60,000. That's two orders of magnitude right there. Yeah, so it's about the the scale, and that that offered it challenges too. You heard about a lot of them in the news, just from the basic ability to provide that video conferencing at scale with the cloud services. Even as you talked about, like Billy, you were saying, not only is it cheaper for hospitals and different medical organizations, but I can go to Best Buy and get a Taito kit for a couple hundred bucks. Also get telehealth equipment in my own home. It's crazy to think how affordable and like accessible. It is just for the general person now. Yeah, it's really interesting because a lot of the organizations that were only, you know, advertising to clinical groups are now advertising to, to patients. There, You talk about these peripherals where I'm watching, you know, a football game and I get a peripheral ad that says, hey, check your heart and lung sounds at home and be able to share those results with your provider real time. And I'm like... I've been doing this for a decade and nobody's ever heard of it. Now all of a sudden it's part of the NFL's commercial package. So absolutely the fact that, that they're really understanding, of course, as Scott alluded, this black swan event really opened up the doors to where people are like, I, I don't know that I want to go back to my doctor's office. I, I always cringed as a father to take my kids into their pediatrician's office because you've got the sick side and the well side and the pediatrician's office. But you and I both know those germs are going back and forth between the two sides. So there's no such thing. But now if my child is sick, all I've got to do is get a link from the provider and my child is now seeing the doctor. And oh, if they need, if they need a temperature, I've got a thermometer that I can stick on her forehead and be 
able to show it to the provider. And now the provider's getting the real-time information and results. And we're both staying as safe as could be had. Uh, unfortunately, it took a pandemic to really get the, the public to see how effective it can be. But I'm so glad that that we had this telehealth and we had this resource of experts out there that were already making it work so that when the pandemic hit, everybody could pool their resources together. And now we have this beautiful infrastructure of telehealth that's really addressed the needs of urban America and addressed the needs of rural America as we continue to see, you know, legislation and, and infrastructure build that continues to support telehealth as it evolves and moves forward along with mankind and us evolving and moving forward. Here's the interesting thing about while you were saying that, that Billy, this kind of opened the kimono in a way, right? So, or we, or, or we got to, the camel got its nose under the tent, right? That the, the whole health system is built upon people coming to seek a resource in person. And we never knew there was an alternative. I just have to go because it's a doctor. It's almost, it's, uh, it's almost religious in a way. So if we think about it, we've got people in their white coats, you have to go to the, you have to go to the high temple of the academic medical center or whatever. There's special language and there's like this talisman of, of a stethoscope that's slung around the neck to imply some sort of authority. And the doctor says that I have to come here and I, I of course I'll wait in the waiting room, but they're running. So, so we're conditioned to just take what we get and that now we know there's an alternative and that's where i have hope even if the even if some of the the regulatory stuff doesn't snaps back a little bit I, I i think that the cat's out of the bag the genie's out of the bottle whatever the metaphor is you want to use that we now though know there's an alternative right because if you think about it, what we do before so whether you're rural or urban i can use both examples now here in miami if i go to the this one clinic i go to it's only eight miles away but it's 45 minutes to an hour. And so you take off from work, you, you drive there through traffic. In my case, you pay for parking. If you can find parking, you walk and find your way to the clinic and then you wait. And depending on if it's a specialty clinic or not, then you go wait somewhere else. And then you go wait somewhere else. Then you do a, if you're lucky, a 10 minute visit, and then you do the whole thing in reverse, right? So for 10 minutes worth of service, it takes two hours or three hours, or if you're rural, right? If, if you have to drive 100 miles or 150 miles. And we all have examples of this sort of just insanity in our own personal experiences. I remember my wife had a untoward mammogram result that came. So she gets a call from the office and you need to come into the office because we need to discuss your mammogram result. We saw something on the mammogram. So we, we'll see you in 10 days to talk about the results. So my wife is understandably freaking out. She's afraid she has breast cancer. And finally, 10 days later, she goes in, oh, it, it was benign, nothing you really need to worry about. They like couldn't tell her that over the phone. They couldn't do that by video. Those are the sorts of things that I think are where it's the most sensible, right? And that's the ATA and other folks that are pushing this idea of hybrid care. It's not just telehealth. It's not just in person. It's the right form of service at the right place at the right time, maybe. I don't know about the term hybrid, but, but that's the sort of thing. If I'm doing a medication check or something that doesn't require a hands-on, like palpation or auscultation, I guess we've got electronic stethoscopes. So if I have one at home, I could do that. For my but I think employers too are part of this uh, equation because so much of our health insurance is, provide, is employer provided that that's why you're seeing so many 
health plans, employer health plans include a telehealth component, Teladoc or Amwell or Doctors on Demand or MD Live or one of those. You know, it's way more efficient and way less time spent away from work. So I know that wasn't the question, but that made that that made me think about the the consumer demand and us knowing that now everyone knows there's an alternative, and I'm hoping they'll demand it. That's what I'm asking everyone to do is to demand it. You are the consumer. You are in charge. That's a great point. In so many other spheres of the consumer, we see this demand for convenience and the ability to get things virtually. That's why we have have the rise of online, sh online shopping, companies like Amazon, you know, places where you don't have to travel, regardless of where you're located, whether urban, rural, travel long distances to get something from a particular store. Seeing that demand in the healthcare space is something that if that's what we're seeing in the consumer space, it's likely we're going to see that in the healthcare space if the option is available, which now well, many more people are aware that the option exists and we're getting some more traction when it comes to reimbursement for those services, cost of entry being lower for healthcare providers to get involved in the services to hopefully see that consumer demand continue to propel telehealth forward. And it's disruptive. Those sorts of changes you're talking about are disruptive or even destructive to traditional models. So you think about what Amazon did to the books, the local bookstore, right? That's, that's the, if you think about it, there are these national uh, telehealth service providers that a lot of employer provided benefits, but people can actually pay out of pocket for those. And then you start seeing these retail or medtail, Walmart Health and Walgreens and CVS with Minute Clinic and that all of their telehealth components, they're really good. Now, the, the one thing none of those have yet anyway is they don't have that longitudinal womb to tomb, cradle to grave knowledge that a primary care provider would have. But they're really good at marketing. They're really good at customer service. And that's what we, that when we talk to, when Billy and I talk to customers, that's a hidden competitor. It used to be you knew someone was coming into your county or your state or your city because they were building a brick and mortar facility. They, they could be anywhere. And, and then there's all these super differentiated, real focus services. And we see ads for these on TV all the time. Now, Billy mentioned before that watching football, I would have never thought during Medicare open enrollment that all of the different Medicare health plans would be touting telehealth as a benefit, right? So it's disruptive. It's a threat to, to traditional healthcare models, just like it was to the bookstores. And think about the other, the other thing about COVID too, is that think about the delivery services, how COVID forced restaurants and re other retail that didn't have delivery, whether they provided it themselves or whether they did it via Grubhub or one of those other services. If they didn't have that, they were going out of business. I think that's the message that people need to hear is you don't know who your competition is and don't assume that after COVID, you're not going to have to worry about it anymore because I, I think it's table stakes now. If you don't have it, people will go elsewhere. That's an interesting point because before working with the UMTRC, I worked for a population health analytics company and we worked with self-insured employers. And really one of the biggest things that we touted to reduce some of their cost and reduce overutilization of the emergency departments was telehealth. It's one of the easiest ways to get employees to connect with a primary care physician or other for sick visits, to be able to connect through with a provider through telehealth. And so 
That aspect has been strong for years, even before the pandemic. Seeing that the service has been disruptive, and so now that we have this demand for it, that kind of begs the question for some uh, providers who just got into the telehealth game during the pandemic who are wondering, do I need to? Or how do I sustain this telehealth service past the pandemic? What are some of your thoughts on sustaining telehealth programs long term? What should people really be looking for to make sure that their telehealth programs last? I think one of the most important things that they've got to be looking for is to make sure that the program adjusts as the needs adjust. I think one of the biggest avenues that we have got to focus on is school-based telehealth. And so an organization really focusing on ensuring that K through 12 and higher education have a telehealth infrastructure so that it allows people to continue to work and their kids can be seen because that's one of the biggest obstacles as a parent is you have a sick child. I now have to take off of work. I've got to get my kid into the clinic. Whereas with school-based telehealth, it's just a, oh, my child doesn't feel well. Let me connect with my local FQHC, my local clinic, let my child get seen and okay, the prescription's already been written and now I'm only taking off a part of the day to go pick up my child, pick up the prescription and then go home and take care of my kid. I think that being able to tell a health program that adjusts with the needs of the population is going to be very important. The second thing from my perspective, especially in rural healthcare, is to build the program right the first time and not to take shortcuts to get into the game. It's really to build your program effective because one of the biggest challenges you're gonna face if you have to rewrite your program is e is A, re-educating your doctor or B, re-educating your clients. And both of those are time consuming. You're gonna lose providers due to attrition because they finally got it figured out and now they've got to change to something else and they're like, no, I'm not gonna do this or the patients. If the patients have finally figured out, this is how I can get in to see my doctor, and this is how it all works out, and it works beautifully, and then you go, oh, by the way, we're completely changing everything, you're gonna lose patients because they're not gonna be willing to make that adjustment. Some will, but a majority aren't. So ensure those are the two things that I would say are gonna be most important from a rural healthcare perspective is to A, make sure that you're able to modify your program as the need, and we're talking small modifications, we're not talking about full platform rewrites, but small modifications as the population needs those modifications, and B, build it right the first time, so as you really expand your services, you're not changing everything so that you lose your very valuable resource in providers, but your even more valuable resource in those clients. Scott, what do you have? I think those are phenomenal points, Billy. The, I think it comes down to that you really need to look at, you, you can't treat it as a separate thing. Like everything, this is all my normal medical practice, and then I've got this separate telehealth thing. It needs to be ingested, inculcated into your whole way of being, right, as a practice. So it, it needs to be integrated into your workflow. And, and that's the other part of it is to really understand your workflows and your, if you're contracting with someone else to provide services for them to understand their workflows, because that's one of the biggest barriers for clinicians. If it's not integrated into what they're already doing and it doesn't leave at least consider it, that it's not going to be successful. That's one of the, the biggest success factors. When I was on the board of American Telemedicine Association, we always said, if we do our job well, that the ATA won't exist because it'll just be medicine, right? 
Now it still exists, but it is, it's just medicine. So you can't think of it as a separate thing. And then the other thing too, is that whatever the investments you're going to make in that is to find other parts of your practice that benefit from having that infrastructure, right? So it could be, it could be, uh, CME, CNE, any healthcare, every health profession has its own continuing education requirements, right? That's, that's part of keeping, whether a phlebotomist or radiology tech or, a specialist, right? You still have those. So whether it's that or just your day-to-day administration and meetings, patient services is another big part. So I think of like the admin part, the clinical part, and then somewhere in the middle is the patient services, things like patient visitation. And, And so when I say about workflows, really not just, don't just take the technology and add it on top of workflows, but think about how we can do things more efficiently or even better by incorporating technology. So that might be like a bigger hospital might look to, I need to have a actual human at every front desk in every clinic, or can I do that? Can I timeshare that with an agent of some sort, whether that's a, whether that's a nurse or a receptionist or whoever's doing the, the greeting and the check-in, or do I co- do a combination of things? So it's patient services and things like the check-in and admissions, the family visitation, still something we're dealing with. And my, my son is 16 years old and he's old enough that his orthodontist will not let my wife accompany him into his appointment. So she sits in the parking lot and he goes in by himself. And then he inevitably forgets to ask. I was a teenage boy once many decades ago and you're just not very communicative and don't think to ask all the right questions. Getting sidetracked there, but the part of re-looking at the whole process and those investments then can be leveraged among multiple functions of your clinic or health. And, and I think one other, one other aspect too is there's so much... Uh, out there in terms of not of COVID related funding that's coming, not, but not just that as these kind of recurring things like the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Telemedicine Distance Learning Technologies Program and some of these other things too. Is that I know at East Carolina and University of Miami, and I know Billy and his program, they were able to offset the infrastructure investment by extramural funding, whether that was federal funding or another really good source is, you know, private foundations are really good sources because you don't just have to go compete on a federal basis. You can look within your own community for resources to offset some of the cost of doing the infrastructure investments. From my experience with the Crossroads Partnership for Telehealth and working on implementing telebehavioral health and telestroke programs, it is so important to make sure your program was built right from day one. Because it's so hard to make those adjustments on the fly while you're seeing patients. I was going to say, I would love to to reiterate what Scott said, which is making it a part of the program and not it being an addition. I have seen so many programs that would say, hey, we offer healthcare or we offer telehealth. And it's that or that really separates it and makes the program not as successful as the programs that say, hey, we offer healthcare and part of that is telehealth. It's the and or the or because I've had a lot of experience of helping organizations really figure out this telehealth thing. And the organizations that were really successful were the ones that used the and rather than the ones that used the or. But I would just like to reemphasize it's the and not the or. And that's where you're going to see some of that sustainability and not necessarily a program that was just used to address a pandemic and get mothballed and forgot about because that's what none of us are looking for on this on this conversation. Yeah, and it's really important to have someone who is your telehealth champion at whatever site 
you're at. And with our experience with Crossroads, we found when you have buy-in from the clinical staff, it's going to be so much easier to make that program successful long-term as well as make it sustainable long-term. Mm-hmm. When your providers want that service, they are familiar with that type of delivery and their patients get excited about it. It's only going to help your program long-term. And it's interesting finding that champion too, because it's not always based on title. So there's someone, there's a clinical influencer or more than one in every institution. And if they don't buy in, it's a, it's a tough battle, right? So it's not just a department chair or someone. It's sometimes it's the the crusty old pediatrician who's been around forever, surgeon that's been around forever. And if they're against it, it's never going to fly. Those are my favorite to challenge because I love to see them get that aha moment. They were completely against it. And then all of a sudden there was the moment where they went, oh, wait, this is every bit as good as what I've been doing the last so long. I remember working with an organization where there was a doctor that had been practicing for an extensive period of time. And he was like, there is no way that Bluetooth stethoscope a hundred miles away is anywhere near as good as this stethoscope that I have around my neck. And I said, okay. And the nurse that was on the other side had a condition that she had not disclosed to the the provider and so she was oscillating and he heard it and he was like do you have and she was like i do and he was like whoa and his mind was blown and he went from i don't like telehealth to that was the best thing since sliced bread and he became a champion when he was extreme opposition he was an extreme i don't even know what the term is he was definitely against it and that moment was when he was like no we have got to we've got to dive into this wholeheartedly and so while i know that there are those people who are extremely resistant to it those are the ones that i have the most fun in getting them to see that aha moment because you're right. The influencers that are there could be people that are, are very positive when it comes to telehealth and they can absolutely be against it. And if you don't get the right people engaged, the program's never going to take off. Or if you get it and it takes off and then that person leaves, you may get a new person in that's absolutely against it. And if it doesn't become the culture, then that person can absolutely destroy a program that you have worked so hard to build this is a different topic, but I think it might be worth, it might be worth talking about. And when you were talking about telestroke, it made me think of this. If you think about what, you know, why has telestroke been one of the biggest applications? And if you look abstract it a little bit, it, it's largely because um, getting stroke certified neurologists to cover emergency departments is very difficult, right? Because that's the requirement to be a primary, primary stroke center is it has to be 24 seven, 365 covered by a stroke certified neurologist. And that can be provided by telehealth because some of the commercial providers of teleneurology services made sure that happened. But that makes me think of, so it's in a way it's a work, it's a workforce issue availability. And I think that's part of the economic argument and and part of what I'm saying about inculcating telehealth into your whole way of being as a health system, because that's a major challenge that is not just related to telehealth, but it's related to healthcare in general, is the personnel shortage, employee intention and recruitment, retention and recruitment. I think it was last week, it was Becker's Hospital Review. They referred to us, uh, healthcare system CIO survey that 
for the first time, workforce shortages went to the top of the list of concerns of CEOs of health systems. And what's one of the ways that I think you can address that is with is, is by virtually providing those services, right? The networking term would be load balancing, but you can load balance your limited clinical resource pool among multiple facilities without them spending the non-productive time behind the wheel driving between facilities and cover multiple facilities. So I think that the workforce challenge can only be addressed unless we're able to just create all these new nurses and specialists and techs and all that stuff overnight. You know, it's a resource limitation. So the ability to distribute that is enabled by telehealth. But I also think, again, we were talking about, we now know there's an alternative. I think as a as an employer, just for recruiting and retaining employees, the ability to work remotely and being flexible time in office, time from home, time in the road is table stakes now. It's something employees are going to demand. And it doesn't matter if they're admin functions or if they're clinical functions. I, I, you know, doctors, believe it or not, doctors are people too. And they wouldn't mind working from their own office a little bit now and again. So something to think about. That's definitely one of those we'll call it happy accidents that are a result of telehealth is the fact that we have discovered that there are ways that we can take one person and they can be shared amongst multiple organizations to be able to provide access. And you're able to more effectively use a person's eight hours or 10 hours or however long their workday is if they're being able to support multiple facilities at one time rather than I've got to drive from here to here I know one organization we were helping in Hawaii from my my previous company, they had one specialist and that specialist was getting on a plane and flying to each of the different islands to go provide that specialist care. And once we got telehealth working for them, they were able to be in one spot and be able to take care of all five locations every day, all day long, every day. And that's one of those sustainability pieces is to be able to bolster your workforce by being able to, as Scott said, load balance a person's work day and load balance a facility's cost of having a specialist on staff and being able to share that workload. Behavioral health is really near and dear to me. And I think that is the only way we're going to be able to address some of the behavioral health issues that we have in this country is to load balance and utilize those behavioral health specialists that we have and utilize them through telehealth to be able to see people and them not be walking into the office because that's only a set amount of time. We experience the fact that if I didn't have to walk in and see my specialist, I was more apt to be open and share those true thoughts and feelings because I didn't have to worry about running into them at Walmart or at the grocery store or that sort of thing. And we were also able to see that age wasn't the barrier, that young people were willing to open up to this person that they weren't going to have to meet in person, or old people were able to open up to this person that they weren't going to meet in person. And so there wasn't this age delineation that said only young people will be able to use telehealth or only old people will be able to use it. It's really anyone can use it. And there's this comfortability factor of people. The, the smartphone has really made our lives so different because we're in it, we're FaceTiming, we're doing all these great things. And it really alluded to telehealth being the next best evolution in healthcare. And so I think that's where sustainability comes is really focusing on figuring out, A, how do I, how do I fix my staff shortages? And I do it by load balancing. And how do I fix my connectivity shortages? I do it by finding a platform agnostic sort of product that works well and that's interoperable regardless of 
the the solution that I choose as a provider, as long as I can be interoperable with that person's smartphone or that person's Mac computer or that person's Android or Windows, as long as I make those sort of selections, I've made a program that's sustainable, that's effective, and that I'm going to get great buy-in for. And so I think that's really, we find those sustainability points and then those other benefits that we didn't even think about from a general healthcare perspective. What are some of those other benefits that we get out of telehealth? And it's the administrative piece that we didn't even consider that, oh, now we have greater connectivity and the load balancing of staff shortages. And my my NP has a, a child that's sick and now I've got to reschedule all of their patients for that day. No, the NP can provide healthcare from home, take care of their sick child, and now maybe I'm rescheduling two patients rather than the 20 that were on their schedule. And so those are some of those things that we don't get out of running a report from an EMR for a no-show rate and things like that. Those are some of those exciting things that telehealth really has opened the door for. It's interesting that you brought up that point as that's actually going to be one of the topics of discussion at our annual conference that we have in September. One of our keynote speakers will be honing in specifically on workforce issues in healthcare and how virtual care options can help offset some of that. And so it's a huge issue that providers and healthcare organizations across the board are facing. And when you see communities that have these health professional shortage areas and variety of different disciplines. Telehealth can really help to bridge that gap for those individuals, as well as, as you said, be a, a great retention tool for providers to be able to want to work at different organizations because they've tried telehealth, really enjoy doing it, and want to continue doing it. Billy and Scott, I just want to thank you so much for uh, taking some time to speak with us today and just share your expertise with all of us. So thanks for coming on and thanks for tuning in. Thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I want to thank you for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Caroline Yoder. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Caroline Yoder and Cameron Hilt of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.